If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers to debate today's biggest ideas. So we are all here to discuss living forever. From gene therapy and fad diets to cryogenically frozen corpses, many still hope we can find a way to live forever. Are we here for a millisecond in time and then gone, or is there some possibility now to transcend that to achieve something that if it's not immortal, is a very long term of mortality. And indeed, are we going to be the first generation to see that? Because some people predict that by 2050, this is going to be some form of reality. On this week's episode, our speakers discuss whether this is actually a repugnant or utopian reality. Does life's transient actually give it its meaning? Or does the fear of death actually prevent us from living fully? Is human life a force for good on the planet? Or would it be better if we didn't live forever? To discuss these questions, we have philosopher and author of Post-Human Ethics, Patricia McCormack, Oxford transhumanist, Anders Sandberg, and novelist and essayist, Jana Teller. As ever, please do subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Give us a rating as this helps other people find us and of course, tell everyone you know that might be interested in the podcast. Back now to Rowan Pelling, who hosts this week's debate. So we are going to uh, kick off, and I think Patricia has nobly volunteered to start. Fears of mortality. Does our fear of death prevent us from fully living? Yes, that's the end. That's all I have to <laughs> okay, say. Okay, bye. Um, yes, but also I'm a death advocate and a death activist and I am pro-death and I would happily like to see the species die and die out. I think we have destroyed enough other species. I think we had our chance. We fucked it up. 
I think that um, humans as they exist today and now are simply repeating the same anthropocentric destructive patterns and it's no good. And so my big question as a response would be, why are we scared of death? What do we think is so valuable and precious and important about our own individuality that it has to keep going forever? What kind of pathological hubris does that involve? And what would happen if we decided to decelerate the human ownership of the earth and start to open up the world to the possibility of other organisms. We have seen the cessation of so many species at our hands. Why is it that we have such human exceptionalism for our own species? Is it really that valuable? Because I'm not seeing a lot of benefit. I'm not seeing, you know, people, many people, but also non-human organisms really jumping for joy at the idea of humans living forever. And I also think that on a very sort of intimate level, death is the one thing that we all have in common and it doesn't matter. Now, people might disagree with me. It doesn't matter how much money or how much knowledge you have. Right now, at this point, we're all going to die. Um, and that is the one thing that reduces us all to the fact that we are simply material beings. And for many people, especially people in pain or in people who don't want to live anymore, the ownership of their life is proven to them as a fallacy because they are made aware of the fact that under our current government, they don't own their death. And so I think we've got this macro idea on one side that I am pro-human extinction and antinatalist, but on a much more intimate level on our day-to-day -day living, we don't own our deaths and that shows that we don't own our lives and I think that in order to really understand a sense of agency, the ownership of death should be part of the ownership of our life. Wow. So, Anders, um, there you have it. Our life isn't really particularly valuable. Um, why should we cherish this in an egotistical way? Why would you want to extend it? Mm. Uh, so, I like to kind of agree uh, with the last part you said. I think we should own our deaths and totally disagree with the first part. <laughs> Otherwise, this would be a rather boring conversation. But we're going to have some interesting agreements and disagreement here. So I would start off by saying, right now, I feel my life worth living. It's really, really enjoyable. And you might argue that, actually, Anders, the reason you feel that is really enjoyable is probably some settings of dopamine neurons in your brain. We can even list some of the genetic variants and some of the connections causing that. That doesn't change that I'm feeling really good right now. Uh, and most people, I think, feel good. Not everybody, and not always, and that is something we actually need to handle. That is also why we should be able to own our lives and actually try to make them better. And I do think that on net, all living beings want to live. That is unfortunately or fortunately what we have evolved to do. The living beings that aimed at extinction, well, they didn't leave that many descendants. So for good and ill, we are the kind of stuff, the entire biosphere right now, that tries to keep on going. And that leads to the, the interesting thing that we are kind of the smartest part of the biosphere right now, which I completely admit doesn't mean we're that smart. We don't really know what we're doing, and we're messing up things in a, in a very bad way in a lot of ways. But we also are aware that we're messing things up, and we can try to change that. 
So my vision of a future would be to actually manage to get our act together, get off this planet and spread life, consciousness and intelligence across the universe. Now, if you're an antinatalist, this is absolute horror. There's going to be so many minds and some of them are going to be in pain and there's going to be a lot of it across the universe. At the same time, I do actually think that we should recognize that in the long run, of course, the entropy always wins. We're right now in this uh, in the beautiful spring of a universe. It's, it's just been around for 13 billion years. Stars are going to be shining in a trillion years. Then they're going to go out, but this, the universe is going to keep on going for about a Google years before essentially all forms of history ends when the last black hole evaporates. You might probably get lifelike things going on for at least 10 to the 36 years before this matter starts decaying. I think there is a potential for an enormously great future that has enormously positive value. And this is partially because I don't think the pain and the negative stuff outweighs the positive, or at least we can make sure that that is positive. Similarly, individually, yeah, I do think that uh, while I like my life, it's not super important, doesn't uh, overrule all other considerations. And I'm aware that even though I want to have life extension, I'm signed up for cryonics, sooner or later I will end, either because I have an accident or because I change into something else. Again, sufficient life extension is equivalent to becoming something else. Even the Christian concept of going to heaven, when you start actually talking to a theologian about how it is in heaven, you realize that you don't have a body, you don't have any negative emotions. Actually, an awful lot of the, thing, lot of the things we normally say make us ourselves, are gone and replaced by some general bright light, which makes it sound like that's actually not me going to heaven even. This is usually why people don't like talking to theologians about the afterlife. So my argument would be, yes, we're mortal. Even if we manage to fix our genes and uh, back us up in cyberspace, so occasionally things will go wrong and entropy will always win. But I'm not going to kind of let entropy just win. I'm going to play hide and seek. I'm going to have rather <laughs> fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Yoni, here, here we are sitting, having a lovely time sitting this hall. Isn't it pleasant enough that we'd like to extend this moment potentially <laughs> forever? Or is that a terrifying um, thought? <laughs> <laughs> I think if we started going for forever, we probably at some point wanted to end. <laughs> and that's kind of why I tend to agree more with what Patricia was saying even though I might not celebrate death quite as much. But um, I, I would like to, to frame what I'm saying by first saying we can't judge life and death unless we look at why we think we are here and what we are here for. And my perspective on this is that I think we are guardians of our planet. We are guardians of that little place on the Earth where we are born or live. We don't own it. We we should respect it and actually leave it, if we do things right, we should leave it better off than when we got into the world. And there are so many different ways of doing that. That can be done, of course, through environmental protection or so. It can also be done sometimes by you inventing a great technology for maybe uh, degrading plastics or writing beautiful poetry or even just bringing up your kids in a good way. But with that in mind, if we are guardians of this planet, then Eternal life is the last thing we should seek. We are, what, seven going on eight or nine billion people on this earth. And I know Sweden is quite vast and have empty for, you know, areas with forests where you can actually get lost. But even in my Denmark, you can't get lost. You, if you enter a forest and you, you walk for a few hours, you will get out on the other side. And then go to Bangladesh, where I worked for a while. And I have been pretty shocked that 
basically nowhere in the country except maybe in the northeastern corner towards Burma will you find any square meter that is not either inhabited or arable land. You just don't find wild nature anymore. I imagine if everyone in Bangladesh would go for eternal life, um, you would quickly have those forests in Sweden populated. And then I don't know if you yourself would anymore enjoy your eternal life. I don't think we want to have just human beings everywhere, because it comes back to what Patricia said, we already have ruined um, so many species on this planet. And we're talking about for the moment that there might not be bees in a few years, and then there won't be flowers, and there will not be very much life left to enjoy. So, and another point of view is to say, why do we enjoy life? Part of the reason I think we enjoy anything is when something ends, we respect it actually more. And I think a lot of what goes into these attempts of eternally extending lives is, is about not respecting what is here and now. And I'll tell a very short anecdote from when I worked in Tanzania. I came, I was 24 years old, straight out of university. And in the beginning in the UN office there, I got a bit annoyed when the Tanzanian colleagues would want to you know, say good morning in many different ways, as you do in Swahili and the cul uh, culture there. How is your house? How is your child? How is your dog? How are you doing? Um, before you could even get to the point of saying, can I have a copy of this document? So I felt, oh, that was like a waste of time always. Or when somebody died, uh, could be far out uncle, people would feel compelled to travel there to go to the funeral. It could be three days travel because transport was not very efficient. The funeral takes place over three days and then three days back. Yet, whatever seemed inefficient in our ways of operating, I realized after a while, it's exactly why you feel in Africa that people are so much closer to life. And I slowly learned that way of appreciating life. Because what most of African culture is about is prioritizing other human beings, prioritizing life over anything abstract. And in our part of the world, we do the opposite. We prioritize the abstract, finishing that report, inventing some derivative of a derivative way of a technology that can take <coughs> us out of the present life. When Africa is everything is about what, what you sense, what you um, experience with other living beings. And therefore, my experience also, they're much less afraid of death because they're much more alive while they have the life. So I think what we should rather learn than instead of extending life eternally is to live much more the lives we have. We have rather long lives, and if we learn to appreciate them more, I don't think we would have even the wish to extend it so much. We have a chance to live, I mean, really wide lives, and we don't at the moment when we focus on just extending it eternally. So um, a very different... Uh set of views already and a different way of living in the moment because your moment means I like it so much, I want to go on. In fact, I'll send millions of people out into space, which <laughs> might answer some of the population. Just enjoy them, enjoy the moment so that you can feel more if you know it's going to end that you can actually enjoy the here and now. And, and yours, that we should, we, we've outlived our usefulness, really. We should go, our time Oh, is I don't think we were ever useful. Oh, yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's, yes. <laughs> we like to feel useful, but that's a myth. I mean, the, the human, human exceptionalism is a myth. Human supremacy is a myth, but the capacity for humans to create dissymmetrical power structures in the world that destroy life is not a myth, it's a material reality. And I think that that's why we very much need to 
deconstruct this myth of human exceptionalism and start to really think about material activism that can alter territories. I, I'm really interested in how you get to do that, because just speaking personally, I find it quite hard, you know, to kind of leave the kind of clinging to self behind. How do you think you're going to get people to embrace the concept of death as an actually perfectly acceptable, if not welcome, avenue? Well, first of all, it's going to happen whether you accept it or not. <laughs> so that's, you know, everybody thinks death is something that happens to other people. Mm. Um, and of course, it's not, although it might not, it might not happen to you. you, you <laughs> Will it? Your optimism is phenomenal, so, you know. But I think that this, this, the problem is with, it is with human exceptionalism and it is with subjective exceptionalism that not only are humans the most important species, but I'm the most important. So whether it's my gender or my race or my nationality or me as an individual, you know, I am the most important. Therefore, my death must be avoided at all costs. And life as an intermeshing macrobiogenic organism doesn't work like that. People have affects that, you know, have perturbations on all other life forms. And so, de not devaluing, because that sounds degenerative, but deprivileging my life over the interactions I have with all other living organisms on Earth doesn't devalue the life that you're living. It just says it's not the only, it's not the important, and it's also attentive and it's accountable, and it also is a call to creative activism. So actually embracing death is not nihilistic in my perception. I know that there are many philosophers in speculative realism and object-oriented ontology, they're, they're all like male hysterics that are going crazy because they don't have any meaning to their life, boo fucking who. Um, but, you know, there's, there's also movements of affirmative activism that accept the uselessness, destructive finitude of humans as a species and especially anthropocentric tendencies. And we are looking for creative ways to make life more livable for all species. And yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, no, I was gonna say, answers, how would you, how would you counter that? We have a very strong argument here that we are useless, you know, we should just embrace death, we should certainly not try and extend it and take over that. I mean, Let's bring us some of your mm. sunny optimism. Yeah. Well, first of all, useless for who or in what sense? There, for something to be useful, it needs to be useful instrumentally to achieve some goal or for some entity. And uh, I think to some extent that we are partially those entities, but you might argue the biosphere might have, some things are useful for the biosphere. You might even say some things are useful for universe, except that the universe doesn't have much of a perspective yet. And I'd like to come back to that point about being obsessed with oneself, because I actually agree with you about that. I used to uh, have uh, the philosopher Derek Parfit, that's my landlord. He rented out all the rooms in his house. We were all philosophers. I was the most practical person, because I could change a light bulb. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, true story. Uh, but. Um, uh, but he, he had a beautiful point in his book, Reasons and Persons, where he spends about half a book meticulously deconstructing the whole idea of personal identity. It doesn't work as a concept. And in an interview a bit later, when asked by an interviewer how he personally reflected on that, he said that, well, it was like being in a hallway with kind of walls creeping in on you as you get older and older. But when he realized that, in some sense, his identity didn't exist, the walls just fell off, and now you can relax. 
you can actually start caring about others. And Derek has philosophical grandchildren, you could say, around Oxford, and that's the effective altruist movement. They are very much taking utilitarianist philosophy seriously. Let's maximize the good for as many people as possible. And not just people, also animals. They're quite a lot of them are interested in reducing pain and suffering among animals. So they're trying to figure out how do we maximize the amount of good in the world. If you give to charity, some charities are 10,000 more uh, times more effective in producing quality-adjusted life years per dollar. Okay, maybe we should make sure more money is going to that. But also to get rid of factory farming but also getting rid of existential risk. So this is another perspective that, yeah, we shouldn't discriminate against people remotely in space. So why should we discriminate against people remote from us in time? So while I think you might welcome if an asteroid uh, surprise uh, destroyed us, uh, well, here the view is Robert, no, it's a good thing that there are many future generations that can experience things. So one can take very different perspectives here. Now, I might personally still be a smug Scandinavian and kind of obsessed with myself, so I sign up for cryonics rather than giving away the money for charity. I'm certainly not claiming to be a good ethicist by any means. But I do think that uh, one can actually care quite a lot about the world without being too obsessed about it. Even if I succeed in being revived in a far future, get uploaded, become some post-human superintelligence, that is going to be only very weakly connected to me right now. Even though maybe some interesting links exist, it's a bit like saying, yeah, I'm an amoeba billions of years ago in primordial ooze. Yeah, to some extent, there is a, a lineage from a single-celled organ that divided that ended up multicellular and ended up as a smug Scandinavian, but that still, that link is very weak. So I do agree we are part of this. And I do think we shouldn't be too obsessed about it, but I still think that means it's worthwhile to try to fix the world and go into the far future. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Okay, coming to, to the other Scandinavian, not sure she's feeling smug or totally unsmug, but you've talked about the attitudes being so different in Africa and how it affected you. I mean, people, people talk very vividly about how different our attitudes were to death previous to the 20th century. Do you think the rise in social media and the kind of reflection all the time of a sort of solipsistic urge to sort of go, me, 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 here are photographs, do you think that's affecting our attitudes well, toward death? I think in a way it's the other way around, that all this social media and the me, me, me is actually a reflection of a sense of being so small that you're unseen and you're so desperate to have your existence recognized. <coughs> and as we in our society don't have any other way presently that make people feel that they exist, then so-called fame, uh, then that becomes the me, me, me. But you can't blame, you know, everyone is doing that, but, I but it is a response to, I think, a, a sick world and sick because even though we claim to be so individualized, we're living in an absolute mass society. Capitalism pushes us all the time 
to be this, you know, number one, to be richer, to be better, to be faster, to be bigger, but it's all adjectives. There's no end or inside of what is the real value of this. Why do we run faster? Why do we have to be bigger in our neighbor? Why do we want the bigger car? But that's what you have to run to do. So somehow you feel your life should have meaning. That's the success criteria we are made. But first of all, if that really was true, then only one person, the, the one who is the number one at any moment, life would have meaning and the rest of us would be meaningless, which of course isn't true. But secondly, um, it just can't be that. Because even the, when people are the number one and on the top, that's when they then realize there was no meaning getting there, which of course is why we see a lot of famous people ending up committing suicide. Because it, it's not what it's about. And I think where where I feel you go off and others who look for this eternal life, though it is a, um, a wonderful like childhood fantasy in a certain way, is we forget that we have this life as a gift. And even, I mean, none of us know actually why we have it. We might talk Big Bang, Universe, whatever, but we actually don't know. We don't even know if there's a God, an Allah, or nothing, or if it's a turtle that decided everything. We know we have a gift of life. We also know that one sure part of this life is death. And I have a feeling if we tamper too much, we simply forget that we, I mean, to appreciate this amazing gift it is. And I feel when you keep focusing on how can we extend it and do something, you forget to just listen to life, this quiet, and where does individualism come in? It doesn't come in when hundreds of people see us, because being seen is passive, you can't feel it. You're alive when you see, that's where I'm, is when you sense something. And the problem with all the modern technology is that any step of it takes away some of our senses. Even the telephone, it reduced human contact to hearing, not anymore seeing. Then we're now with a computer, you don't sense the other person. I mean, we also know when we're in a room with somebody, even if it's not one of the five basic senses, but you sense the energy of another person. But, but with when we always communicate a lot of the time through the computer with others, we have reduced our sensual experience of this world to a two-dimensional picture. That's, that's what we get in and spend so much time on instead of putting this aside and go out and, and live taste the water, walk on grass with bare feet. <laughs> really, but, yeah. but <laughs> that's where you expand and extend yeah. your life. But, don't you <laughs> but have you never seen a transhumanist walk in the grass with bare feet? I have. There, of course, transhumanists You can do it later. Yeah, well, the, the of or course. You after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the point is, there is this view that life extensionists are all doing something very, very narrow and technocratic. But as you said, there are different dimensions to life. And many actually are doing their best to extend in other dimensions, whether that is meditation or indeed the social interactions. There are some interesting disagreements about what kind of life is worth living. Again, getting back to owning your life means that you need to be able to actually both know what options there are and then take charge on what uh, options you go for. But there also has to be grass for then everyone to walk on. And again, mm. if all those 8 billion mm. people on this earth all want to have longer lives and all these high growth population mm. or new generations to come, there's not enough grass for everybody. Mm. But I think but also maybe Elon Musk would have sent them all mm. you know, up into space. Is uh, it? Yeah, it's going to take a while before we get the grass on Mars, of course. But I, I think some of that, uh, some of the practical problems, who will pay the pensions, what about overpopulation, what about dictators running forever, 
there are actually fairly clear solutions, and I can bore you all with uh, talking about that. Okay. The existential part. I is feel like I like to yeah. come to because mm. she she hasn't had a say for. I really feel like we need to talk about this because you know the next big question: What are the real perils of living forever? I mean, you say you're a great science fiction reader. You're an expert in horror, but that so often crosses into. I don't know where that came in. I haven't written on horror oh, really? in like 15 years, oh, okay. but you know. I don't know, but it was it was in all the bios I looked at. <laughs> so um, it was it's you know there's, there's this sense that every single story or narrative that we grow up with about living forever warns us. You know, it's it's a there's a warning. That's oh, no, I know. I, I think say. that's alarmist rubbish. I don't I don't have a problem <laughs> with that at all. I think it's because I'm going to say something right now that probably nearly every single person in the room is going to boo me for saying. I think reproduction is a form of transhumanism because right. it's I want to live forever and because I can't, I'm going to pop out a crotch fruit who will live forever <laughs> for me. <laughs> well, so I think that actually your point about the manifestations of life is very true, that transhumanism isn't just, you know, some ghost in the machine, uploaded sentience. All, nearly all religion, not all, but nearly all religion and I'm guilty of it because, you know, we write, we are activists, we do things to leave a legacy, we do things to leave sort of reverberations. These are all forms of wanting to live forever because they're wanting to be remembered and having children is just another version of that. Um, and so I think that for me, the concept of transhumanism is any anthropocentric compulsion to perpetuate human existence. Can I just ask you, I mean, philosophically, say humans go, there's always going to be a species that's on top, that's just as pointless. Does it really matter that we're egotistical that is transhumanism? I actually agree with that point. I think we have children pretty much out of egotism and the desire to sort of continue some strange, make a claim on the planet. Does it matter? Something else would take well, I'm place. Well, I'm not an ethicist, so I don't believe that, you know, all life is suffering and we should kill every animal as well as ourselves. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not pro-asteroid, actually, <laughs> unless it's just a human-killing asteroid. But, um, uh, but yeah, I, I think that what we... So just as, you know, hetero-white dudes shouldn't be talking for women and white people shouldn't be talking for people of colour, we shouldn't be speaking for other species, but we should be making room and making way and being ethical. And being ethical is not sustainability. It's stop murdering them. Stop encroaching on the earth, which is not our territory, but it is a very multi-vocal territory. And in that sense, whatever comes out on top afterwards, fine. But we, are account we should be accountable and responsible for our species. And we should be doing what we can to not be a horrible, what Michelle says, calls the parasite species. We are a parasite species. We take without giving. And we do it within our species and we do it upon the earth. And I'm not sort of talking about a cataclysm because cataclysm, like the, you know, transhumanist that lives forever but becomes a crazy hell, again, they're, they're, they're alarmist things that really don't, attend to the very ordinariness of the scenario, I think that slow and careful activism can wind down the species in a very thoughtful way. I, I don't know why this is so funny to you. But <laughs> you like know, I, I, <laughs> I suppose just because I do regard as just one of the many species we're all sharing this planet together. We don't I mean, share. We're not yeah. good sharers. We're not good sharers, that is for sure. I How do you feel well, about Well, I definitely think that one way to address a lot of the problems we have on this earth right now 
would be to try to encourage people not to have kids for a few generations. Uh, this, of course, won't happen, but we, at least we could get down to maybe trying to say one kid. Um, and politicians tend to say, oh, population growth and make it possible to pay the pension for the next generation, but at some point, that you just can't have more people on this planet. So if we reduce, imagine we reduce the population on this earth to one-tenth of what it is now. All we talk about, you know, of, of pollution and climate change uh, would actually be addressed just by that. So, um, which, you know, again, would make living here right now, I think, much more pleasurable than for those who would survive us. And I don't think... I don't know, for me it's just mind-boggling when there's so much to appreciate in this life and so many mysteries and so much magic in life. Why do you want to rush towards having a life in space in some future? To me there's some kind of lack of respect of that but gift we are giving as but life. I see in the beauty when doing my dishes, the particles in the water are mysteries. Right. I want to be able to do, not necessarily doing the dishes infinitely far, but there is, I completely agree with you. There's amazing mysteries around us, but that, I also want to see more of them. There are mysteries on Mars too. And similarly, I think, yes, of course, it might make sense to have fewer kids, but if you look at what countries have really lowered the birth rates, well, you see it in Southern Europe, not because the Catholic Church suddenly said, oh, you should really have fewer kids for the planet. No, it's because you can't have a career as a woman in Italy and have a kid. You have a choice and suddenly, essentially, the number of kids goes down. While in North Europe, where we have good childcare, we have more kids. So it seems like one natural thing would be to say, for the sake of the planet, remove uh, welfare subsidies uh, to childcare. That seems crazy. No, yeah. I think now you're going <laughs> on a really <laughs> wild... Actually, yeah, but like my point <laughs> is, uh, we have been able to lower our birth rates. Although all of evolution has been trying to procreate our genes, and we can lower that because we are rather crea crazy thinking beings. We can actually change our minds because of ideas. I don't think it's very likely you know, that your ideas will win, but we, it could, because I'm not if in you're compelling enough... <laughs> I don't need to <laughs> lose or win. Yeah. But... Then, uh, Evolution can be shaped by ideas. And, and can I just ask you things specifically? Because, you know, we've got people who are vehemently disagreeing. I mean, do you admit to, I mean, your optimism, as we've all noticed, is, inc is incredible. But do, do you admit to, you know, the, the sort of fears and hubris that we all see that, that there is this kind of fear that, that someone's saying this is playing God, that maybe you are just not giving enough space to all the other forces that create this planet, that, that you're sort of, you're, you're sort of claiming a superiority for human existence that we don't really merit? No. Uh, I, I think the problem is people are claiming I'm claiming a lot of things. Oh, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, no, seriously, I think yeah. it's an interesting thing because notice how many here have been talking about what transhumanists want. How many of you have actually met transhumanists? I have to say you're I my have. first. Yeah. I've met, yeah. I've met, I've met yeah. a number yeah. of them. So, so you're always right in your critique of transhumanists. But no, 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 I'm, I'm no, joking. No, not at no, all. I, I, none of them are the same. I mean, I've met many, many... Yes. Uh, and they, they generally, like if you get a bunch of transhumanists around in any ethics deb debate, you find that they're very, very different mm. views. But we tend to make up an idea what something is. What is eternal life? Something springs to mind immediately. Typically shaped by our culture, shaped by our experience. 
but quite a lot of that when we ascribe things to. So I do think that, yes, we have a special place as a species because we are a species that are intelligent, able to mess around the, with the world because we've got cumulative cultures and big brains that can be reprogrammed by talking to each other. That gives us a chance to actually really help the biosphere. And that might in the, indeed be re involve reducing our birth rate, but it might also involve spreading life to the stars. You, do you um, want to respond to that? No, I, I, where I think I look at life very differently than you do is it's as if you, you're seeking the linear, that we can keep going out somewhere and um, make new things, and not that actually death to me is so much part of the new life springing. If you look at anywhere in nature, you know, any flower that you really admire, it will wither and die, but then it will become part of the earth and compost by, you know, um, uh, whatever insects and so are around and eating them, and then a new flower will spring from that, and that's how life goes around. And if one doesn't, therefore, give room to death, I really believe mm. you but reduce life to something that we don't mm. want it. But Can why do you think I'm not giving room yeah. for death? Because you're yeah. saying you want to have eternal life. No, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I, I, in my talk, I said explicitly, entropy always wins. Yeah. No matter what we do, no matter if all my wildest dreams come true, entropy will win. This is, so I would, I would like to come to Patricia here, because we're getting <laughs> to this space where, so I like kind of, I'd like you to think about the kind of, you know, that, that if we do a sort of another fierce, sort of 12 minutes or so. Just sort of thinking that, um, obviously we've had an interesting case recently um, with, uh, Dave, I think it was David Goodall, the Australian um, academic who went to Dignitas, to, and he was 104, mm -hmm. and he said life hadn't been fun since he was 90. That was about where, and, and he wasn't dying, so he just thought, I want to exit the way, I want to go with Beethoven or whatever he played. Now, d when you see this kind of embracing of death, I mean, it's a sort of, practical way for us to come to terms with our mortality? Is it more of us? I think that some people have a very different relationship to life than others. I think that some people are unwell. I think some people are unhappy in a way that is not simply because of social injustice, but some people, you know, to say that we all have the same relationship with life is to say that we are all the same, and that's just absurd. Some people don't want to live, some people live for others, some people live for themselves, you know, what I find phenomenal is that if the only thing we really own is our life, then why can't we all just go to a vending machine and buy some pento barbitol? Because some of us don't want to keep going. And what is really horrible is when people want to die either because they're sick or because they're just suicidal. Some people are just suicidal. We don't even want to accept that. We don't want to think, you can't not want to live. Life is sacred. Life is sacred except for non-human life. Then you can just kill it, eat it, and shit it out. Like, that's how sacred we think non-human life is. That's revolting and absurd. Human life is not any more or less sacred. You know, we, we number the dead in genocides, but as long as they're a different colour or they're from a different country, so we're very hypocritical and inconsistent and we all don't have the same relationship to life and there is something deeply awful about people who want to die, who have to commit suicide in a very horrible way and they have to die in a very horrible way and this is not okay and I think that, you know, we've seen the eighth repealed. It's time now to start looking at ownership of our life 
which, you know, all life is defined by death. As you say, entropy is within the definition of life. So then can't we own that? What do, you, what do you think philosophically about the prospect that we should just be better about giving people an exit? I, I think it's uh, super important. Uh, after all, I wouldn't be in favor of forcing people to live forever if that was possible. That then, uh, is uh, the worst kind of thing you can do. Uh, I'm con certainly concerned that there might be ways of persisting in bad ways that go on indefinite and that it would be hell and we should have ways of opting out. But it's going to be very individual. My grandfather, when he was 80, had done everything he wanted out of life, and then he more or less stopped living. Meanwhile, my 107-year-old grandmother, she's keep on ticking, she keeps on ticking on. It would upset her social schedule to uh, die. <laughs> um, she recently had this little problem that uh, the local school, school called and said that she should start first grade because of a computer error. And she gracefully declined and said, oh, I finished school. Actually, I finished my career as a teacher and is now retired. But she's now actually uh, an honorary member of this uh, school class. The little kids were asking her questions like, what were the computer games in your day? <laughs> and, uh, and she keeps on going because she finds life meaningful. And I think we should do that. As long as we have a meaning, and that ideally should be a good meaning and not just because you think you have a meaning, that is, uh, you really should scrutinize your life from, uh, occasionally, then you should uh, keep on going. But when you don't feel that you're meaningful, when it's actually a rational choice, you should be able to opt out. And you should be allowed that and supported in doing it in a good way. I'm interested, um, there's been quite a lot of talk about the way we use midwives to enter, you know, to usher people into the world, that there should be some for form of midwifery at the end of our life, that we should have a, have a kind of midwife figure. That doesn't mean it has to be, you know, sort of the rare, yeah, one of the rare um, gender reversals where it's sort of tilted towards women, but that we should have some way of ushering people out. We should have a formal spirit of exit. Do you think that's right? I think at least, you know, without going to the very uh, far extended life, that the fact that we can live so long now that our physical capability often doesn't keep up with our mental faculties, and that means you know, people suffer very often towards the end. Yes, we should allow whatever we call it assisted suicide, but maybe we should make some very beautiful ways of transitioning. And actually, in, in Greenland in the old days, it was simply part of society. When you became so old, you could no longer manage to be a contributing member of your local society. The old person or sick person would simply walk out at night and you know, you fall asleep somewhere a bit far out from your, um, uh, what are they called in English, the Eskimo uh, igloo. Mm, yeah. um, you had, you, they find you dead the next morning. And there was no horror about that. That was part of, of life, except that that's your way to choose to die when you're ready for the moment, except when you no longer feel you are a contributing member of a society that can't carry a person who is a burden. And that might sound cruel f if seen from the outside, but I think actually seen from the inside, it's what it's about. Why are people suicidal? They're suicidal because they don't feel that they have any role in the world that is, is positive or constructive. And whether because they're too sick to, to live that or, or just don't feel it. Because in a certain way, I think you're right, that people who really just feel suicidal, there comes a point if they're grown-ups and have their faculties where we ought to respect that. Mm -hmm. And maybe even think it's courageous. Um, but of course, you may be finding out why they think that. And, but if people think that, we should respect it. And there are death doulas now. 
Yeah, death dooms as well. Yeah, there was yeah. a thing. Yeah, there are death dormers and now. And death cafes? Sort of cafes. Sort of, I think there's a, oh, there's a cafe which where people meet and sort of, you mm. know, discuss their exit. Because, so. I, I mean, we know that the distribution of care for dying people who want to die but aren't allowed to legally usually goes to their family and it's incredibly distressing. Mm. It's unpaid labour that is also emotionally eviscerating. So it's, it's also, you know, a sort of the, the mental health of society also depends on allowing people a, a joyous death. And I think it can mm. be a joyous death. Yeah, it can be done beautifully. I'd just like to thank Yanni Anders and Patricia for a, a really invigorating talk. It was bloody brilliant. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. This podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Anders Sandberg, Jana Teller and Patricia McCormack. Please do let us know what you thought of today's episode. Make sure you subscribe, give us a rating, tell anyone you know that might be interested. And of course, join us next week for more debates and interviews with the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.